0: Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome to the School of St. Philip Neri. Uh, this is our monthly meeting uh, to discuss, in particular, over this year, the the life and the teachings of Philip Neri, the founder of the Oratory. Uh, as we've mentioned before, this is the 500th year of our anniversary of Philip's birth, and so it's a special year for us as Oratorians. And so I thought it would be a good idea to reflect upon his life in a little bit more detail, both with little biographical information, but also uh, each month to focus on a particular teaching or set of teachings of Philip. And this month we'll be looking at Philip's teaching on chastity. And as always, Philip is a great teacher and uh, he gains a lot of his teaching from the Desert Fathers for, with whom he was uh, very familiar and, uh, but he's able to present them in such a way, I think, that was accessible to his day and age, and it is left to us to try to work through it ourselves and uh, embrace it for our own day. Uh, I want to begin, as always, with uh, him, as Phillips' meetings often did, and tonight we'll be singing "Love Divine, All Loves Excelling," opening page of your program. And please stand; it's always a little easier to sing when standing. And then after that, uh, Brother Paul will read a brief selection uh, from Philip's life, uh, Newman's uh, uh, edition of this, on Philip's purity. For God, come to our assistance.
1: The Lord make haste to help us. Love divine, love loves excelling, joy.
2: Pleasure, which God takes in cleanness of heart, had no sooner come to years of discretion and to the power of distinguishing between good and evil, than he set himself to wage war against the evils and suggestions of his enemy, and never rested till he had gained the victory. Thus, notwithstanding he lived in the world when young, and met with all kinds of persons, he preserved his virginity spotless in those dangerous years of his life. No word was ever heard from his lips which would offend the most severe modesty, and in his dress, his carriage, and countenance, he manifested the same beautiful beautiful virtue. One day, while he was yet a layman, some profligate persons impudently tempted him to commit sin. When he saw that flight was impossible, he began to speak of them of the hideousness of sin, and the awful presence of God. This he did with such manifest distress, such earnestness, and such fervor, that his words pierced their abandoned hearts as a sword, and not only persuaded them to give up their horrible thought, but even reclaimed them from their evil ways. At another time some bad men, who are accustomed to think no one better than themselves, invited him on some pretext into their house, under the belief that he was not what, he, what the world took him to be, and then, having got possession of him, thrust him into a great temptation. Philip, in this strait, finding the doors locked, knelt down and began to pray to God with such astonishing fervor and heartfelt heavenly eloquence that the two poor wretches who were in the room did not dare to speak to him, and at last themselves left him and gave him a way to escape. His virginal purity shone out of his countenance, His eyes were so clear and bright, even to the last years of his life, that no painter ever succeeded in giving the expression of them. And it was not easy for anyone to keep looking on him for any length of time, for he dazzled them like an angel of paradise. Moreover, his body, even in his old age, emitted a fragrance, which even in his decrepit old age refreshed those who came near him. And many said that they felt devotion infused into them, by the mere smell of his hands. As to the opposite vice, the ill odor of it was not to the saint a mere figure of speech, but a reality, so that he could detect those whose souls were blackened by it. And he used to say that it was so horrible that nothing in the world could equal it, nothing in short but the evil spirit himself. Before his penitents began their confession, he sometimes said, O my son, I know your sins already. Many confessed that they were at once delivered from temptations by his merely laying his hands on their heads. The very mention of his name had a power of shielding them from, of shielding from Satan. Those who were assailed by his fiery darts. He exhorted men never to trust themselves, whatever experience they might have of themselves, or however long their habits of virtue. He used to say that humility was the true guard of chastity and that not to have pity for another in such cases was a forerunner of a speedy fall in ourselves, and that when he found a man censorious and secure of himself, and without fear, he gave him up for lost. And then uh, there's just a prayer. Um, Philip, my glorious patron, who didst ever keep unsullied the white lily of thy purity, with such zealous care that the majesty of this fair virtue beamed from thine eyes, shone in thy hands, and was fragrant in thy breath, obtain for me that gift from the Holy Ghost, that neither the words nor the example of sinners may ever make any impression on my soul. And since it is by avoiding occasions of sin, by prayer, by keeping myself employed, and by the frequent use of the sacraments that my dread enemy must be subdued, Gain for me the grace to persevere in these necessary observances.
0: Okay. So you can see from Philip's life that uh, it was an experiential knowledge that that he had, that he preserved his purity, uh, the purity of his youth, remained a virgin until his death and uh, was very guarded in regards to uh, his chastity. Uh, something perhaps extraordinary in our day to think about, that Philip would uh, take great measures to protect the virtue within himself and with, uh, within others. And we're going to find the, the language used here and that Philip used the time, maybe a little bit harsh uh, to modern ears, and I, I didn't want to edit that out. Uh, because I think it does give a picture of of Philip and how he he pursued the virtue of chastity and I think we have to sort of struggle with why he might uh, state things in the way that he did and if there is some corrective that we could offer to that uh, then we we will but uh, nonetheless Philip saw chastity as uh, many of those before him as being perhaps the most important of the virtues. St. John Climacus said, chastity is the name of all the virtues because uh, chastity is the the rightly ordered desire. So when all the desires are ordered towards God, then the perfection of virtue is is attained. And so chastity isn't simply uh, a sexual purity. It has to do more with a kind of purity of heart and in one's relationship with God and all others that really allows one a deeper freedom and, and a greater capacity uh, to love. And so this is why it's so highly valued and so protected by, by Philip. And uh, so why not we just jump into the discussion here. As always, and we'll, we'll try to treat this as a, a group Lexio reflection and uh, pause here and there to uh, see what you have to say about it or any questions that you might have. But uh, considering what our generation seems to be afflicted with, this is perhaps a a very timely subject. Once again, St. Philip proves to be the best of spiritual guides, particularly regarding his teachings on the struggle for chastity. Philip sought to maintain purity throughout the whole course of his life, the times through rather rigorous means and kept unsullied the gift of his virginity despite his rigor philip did not suffer from scrupulosity nor did he have a negative view of the human person or sexuality rather he humbly understood the power of human desire and relentless and the relentless nature of temptations that arise from the appetites if he gave himself no leeway in maintaining strict mental and physical discipline and seemed not merely reserved in his relationships with members of the opposite sex, that one might say severe, it was because he knew that no matter what age or how pure of heart one might be, that the devil will never miss an opportunity to stir the bodily appetites which are a part of the human experience. So as we we enter into the discussion uh, of this, I think it's important to emphasize again that as... Uh, As human beings, we are also desiring beings. And that this desire is important for us uh, in our spiritual life. It's what makes us long for the Lord, and it's what makes us long for the kingdom, for life of virtue, as well as intimacy with others. But because of the reality of sin in our, our lives, this desire can become disordered. We can become very self-centered in seeking to satisfy those desires rather than allowing them to be touched and ordered by the grace of God. And so when we look at the spiritual tradition all the way back to the early fathers of the church, we see them have a kind of respect for this desire uh, within us as human beings. That they knew that to simply cut this desire out would be to hobble ourselves. Uh, both in our capacity to engage in relationships with others, but also to engage in our relationship with God. That if we were simply to uh, somehow magically remove this bodily desire within us, we would be less than than human. And indeed, there have been those individuals within the history of the church who took extreme measures and then were condemned by the church for doing so. Those who mutilated themselves themselves Uh, precisely so they wouldn't have to struggle with this, the desire. And it's also important that we don't have a negative view of it. I think because it is such an enormous struggle for us as human beings and can, uh, again, come upon us uh, like a tidal wave at times, we can become very distressed. And for those who struggle with it in particular, in our day and age, we've mentioned before, Uh, we suffer from the plague of pornography and it's become worse and worse as time has gone on especially with internet pornography and in many ways there's nothing that really prepared our generation to deal with it. That it is so accessible and really plays on the, the visual aspect of pornography that it pulls people in to the point of addiction and so the idea of chastity or purity of heart almost seems to be an impossibility and a kind of desperation can come over people in regards to ever uh, being able to change this, especially if it's gone on for uh, decades uh, of their life. And oftentimes, especially young men, I find become exposed to this at like the age of 13 or 14, you know, when they first start using the computer regularly. And someone, a friend, uh, exposes them to it, or they just come across it themselves. And then slowly, a kind of addictive behavior begins to develop, and the passion begins to take hold. And when it takes hold that young, uh, uh, that early in a person's life, it's very hard to remove it. And so there is a lot of anguish that is associated with this in people's lives. They can be living an otherwise good Catholic life, want to live a holy life, but because it's become rooted in imagination, memory, because the desire, the passion has become so strong, it becomes very difficult to to uproot. And Philip was very good in dealing with this in his time and I think we can learn a lot from him. Not to be condemning, to be gentle, to be patient with others and with ourselves in the struggle, knowing Uh, how difficult it can be and also the fact that it's rooted in our our bodily desires, our bodily appetites. Um, Let's see. Uh, Never living under the illusion that somehow it's overcome. So even if we reach a state, because we've grown old, (laughs) that uh, it seems to have less of a hold on us. Philip warns that we don't want to fall into a kind of of pride, that Satan is always looking for that opportunity. uh, When we let down our guard, our vigilance in the spiritual life, where we expose our uh, um, uh, imagination to things that would uh, fill our mind, our memory with inappropriate images, again, those passions can be stirred. And so the vigilance that's needed for chastity, for purity of heart, is something that's needed throughout the entire course of our lifetime. It's something that never leaves us. And it's the same thing with uh, the struggle with gluttony, that we never lose our need for food. And so there's always going to be a struggle there for us to to overeat and to give ourselves too much. But uh, before we go on, does anybody have any comments about what has been said so far? Any questions? No. <laughs> question. Yes. Where are we? We're, uh, we've just <laughs> finished the first paragraph.
3: <laughs>
0: Rachel was lost in ecstasy.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Think, thinking about the wonders of Chastity. <laughs> Okay, Philip held the virtue of chastity in the highest regard and the quest for purity of heart as the immediate and essential aim of the spiritual life. So much so that he held no one in esteem, even the seemingly virtuous, if they were at all unchaste. His teaching was simple and straightforward, yet not easy. There are three kinds of temptations against purity. One from the devil, which is overcome by prayer. Another which arises from excess in eating, which is overcome by abstinence. And a third which arises from looking at women and conversing with them. And this is overcome by shunning occasions of sin, chiefly by bridling the sight. Below we have the fitting remedies for all these temptations as taught by St. Philip. So the highest regard for the virtue. And so, as I mentioned, Philip was deeply rooted in the writings of the Fathers, in particular, Climacus that I've already mentioned, and Cassian. And uh, in our Wednesday night group here, we've been reading St. John Cassian, and he writes about chastity as much as he writes about anything, second only to prayer. This is how important that he sees it, that having this desire really oriented towards God is something that is essential in the spiritual life. And Philip knew how difficult it was to cure it. And so he was as vigilant as they were in his teaching. And this is where things get a little bit harsh, uh, as you could already pick up from this last paragraph, that Philip was guarded and even a little severe, and especially in his younger years in his relations with women. And this had more to do with Philip's understanding, I think, of the power of human desire and his own weakness more than the evil nature of women. (laughs) Come on, you can laugh a little bit more about that. (laughs) That he understood that he couldn't expose himself to temptation, especially in his role as priest and the intimacy that he would have with individuals, in particular within the confessional, And so as we'll see that in his relations with anyone, but in particular with women, Philip was very guarded both in in his looks, speech, conversation, even eating with members of the opposite sex. And it's here that I think we can scrutinize things a little bit. What was going on in Philip's generation? How did they understand? How how were women understood, especially in this period of time, and looked upon? There's no question about it that women are often looked upon as a source of temptation uh, in the writings, spiritual writings of the church. And, you know, Philip, saint though he was, was still uh, guided by these writings and still guided by the cultural and social uh, attitudes of his own day. And so it's here that I think we can step back and say, well, can we modify this in some measure, or do we need to modify it in some measure in order that we, we can have a, a truer and deeper understanding uh, of chastity in our own day? Uh, it was to the point with, for Philip that there was a woman who came to, to confession for like three decades, and he never looked at her in the eyes. And so it was extreme. And uh, so I think we need to look at that a little bit as we go on. Next paragraph. Again, the thinking and language behind these teachings may seem coarse and severe, but we must remember what Philip himself offered as the reason for this. All sins displease God, but most of all those contrary to purity, and they are very difficult to cure. Beyond this, it is helpful to understand that his understanding was shaped by the Desert Fathers, in particular St. John Cassian, who placed purity of heart as the immediate aim of the spiritual life. For through it and through maintaining physical chastity, one develops a greater freedom in loving God and others. It is in rigorously purifying the passions that desire becomes rightly ordered and with it the capacity for true intimacy. So what is being presented to us, I think, is... A more an issue of integration uh, as human beings. What do we do with all of our desires, especially when they have been touched by sin in some way? And in particular for our generation, what do we do in the face of the profound lack of purity, sense of modesty, the value of chastity? What do we do when those things are, are absent? How do we address it? And certainly Presenting sexuality as something evil or you know, simply telling people to be restrained you know, isn't going to be enough for our, our day and age. There has to be a, more of a sustained teaching that the church puts forward as well as a, a culture that helps uh, people really live this in their day-to-day life. And you know, for us as Christians, if we understand chastity as the, the bedrock of all virtue, then we are going to take steps in, in our life to, to protect it as, as Philip did. And that might mean making certain sacrifices in, in our life, that we have to live a life that is distinctively Christian. And if this is a virtue that we value above all others, then there are things in our, our world that we are not going to be able to expose ourselves to, that we know will in some way lead us along that path uh, of sinfulness, or at least will be a, t- a source of temptation for us. Jesus has that phrase, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And you know, f- for us as Christians, we have to say, oh, what is our life going to look like? If we are individuals who are truly seeking to live a life of purity, what are the things that we are going to both avoid but also do in in our spiritual life in regards to fasting, the depth of our prayer, Eucharistic adoration, the frequenting uh, of the sacraments? How focused and rigorous are we going to be in, in those activities in order that we might know the grace of God, in order to uproot The passion within us. And so I think we need to develop uh, a comprehensive vision for ourselves and and others that certainly goes beyond uh, traditional teaching uh, precisely because of how our culture is afflicted. Any comments before we go on to to Philip's teaching? Yes. Just a
4: quick question. Mm -hmm. You said something about chastity being the bedrock of all virtue. And is that just sort of you inferring that from what St. Philip says, or is there some kind of definitive teaching on that about virtue?
0: Well, it goes back uh, to the Desert Fathers, in particular John Comcus, who just said chastity is the name of all virtues. And by that, he means that it's necessary and for virtue, and all virtues have their root in it. That if chastity is rightly ordered desire, rightly ordered love, then every other virtue is going to be tied to it in some way. If we desire to love in the way that God wants us to love, then we're going to seek purity of heart, first of all. And so that's why Cassian then would make it the the immediate aim of the spiritual life. That for him, if you don't have this immediate goal and don't understand it, then you could be expending a lot of effort in the spiritual life and going off into nowhere. And I think that's true in you know, the, the spiritual life of many within in the church, this lack of clarity. That we can be seeking certain spiritual experiences, engaging in certain kinds of prayer and yet neglect the, the formation of mind and heart that ha- has to take place in order that we can know a greater freedom in our spiritual life. You know, the, the word that I've often used to describe this is infatuation, false light, that often you know we can be looking for warmth, for comfort in the things of the world and they seem to be good and virtuous. And so we'll go after them, pursuing them, but we find ourselves lost in the darkness uh, of the night. And it's actually an optical illusion in the desert. People will think as they're traveling that they see a light, a fire in the distance, and so they'll head off towards it. But it's an optical illusion, and so they can be going off for hours and for miles and be more lost than ever. And so unless we have this immediate goal and if our focus is on other things in the spiritual life and in our personal life, other than seeking purity of heart, then we're going to be expending a lot of energy but might make no progress in the spiritual life. And so, you know, I think the problems that we see in our day are are obvious, but what isn't so obvious is the beauty and the importance of this virtue and why it's held to be so beautiful okay. any other comments or questions Joey did you have a thought did you have a thought <laughs> you were looking at me with a sort of a pensive look what's that very open ended question <laughs> um, that's true i should know who i'm talking to <laughs> Well, you don't have to make one up. I just, it looked, (laughs) it just looked like you did, so. So,
5: (laughs) I mean, this all makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, How this, how purity of heart is the proximate goal, how chastity is the name of all virtue. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, I've also heard teachings about how sins against chastity are actually, like, less than, like, the sin of pride, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, so, like, it is a bad thing, but on a scale not as bad as other sins. Mm -hmm. I wonder how that fits into this discussion.
0: Well, I think that would be, I think Cassian and, and, and Philip would say that there would be no way of overcoming pride unless one first had attained purity of heart and that purity of heart is only attained through humility and so to attain purity of heart gives one the strength then to overcome the the greatest of of the capital sins that one learns in this struggle for chastity not to depend upon one's strength at all that it requires an extreme measure of poverty of spirit and humility, that you have to acknowledge your own radical dependence upon God. And this is the curious thing about the Desert Fathers. You would think with all their ascetic behaviors, how they push themselves to the limit, that there might be a kind of semi plagianism There are plagianism that they overemphasize the human will and uh, human effort. But what we find is the exact opposite. This constant refrain of the absolute necessity of the grace of God and abandonment of any idea that the life of purity can be achieved without it. And this is the great struggle for purity, because the the more that we struggle with it, the more we become focused on it, the more that we become focused on it, the more we are dragged into it. Whereas humility tells us you have to be focused completely upon God. And so turn away from it and immerse yourself In the action that expresses the greatest humility of all, and that's the in deep prayer, that to engage in prayer is to acknowledge our poverty, our need for God, and what He alone can provide. And so, you know, I think that's how they would respond to it. That you would never get to even struggling with pride, even though they would acknowledge it's the most, you know, difficult. To to overcome that you would never get to it unless you had first achieved this. Uh, Joseph Pieper has a
6: a little book called The Silence of St Thomas, and uh, St Thomas Aquinas had like a similar episode when he was younger, where he was forced in a situation we had to fend off a prostitute using a a uh, brand from the fireplace, and he went out after the prostitutes. You know, it was, like you know, it was crazy, but uh, <laughs> you know, boy, no, it's, it's a real thing. It happened. Uh, but the, uh, the point that Pieper made was that, uh... Pieper. Was that, uh... <laughs> Yosef. Uh... The reason that St. Thomas was able to look so deeply into the mysteries of God was that, uh, was precisely because of his purity of heart. Uh, hmm. That, that allowed for, you know, blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. Right. And so, the, you know, if you don't have the purity of heart, your vision always remains clouded, and you only see what so looks in front of you, and you end up being concentrated on yourself, and you end up being you know, caught into a vicious cycle where you're only focusing on yourself. Right. Whereas the pure in heart, though, are able to see beyond themselves and ultimately to God. Right. So really, that's why it really has to be at the center of the, the spiritual life.
0: Yeah. And, you know, this is something that the, the Desert Fathers learned from experience, too. You know, that they were the first-step psychologists. I mean, they really did come to understand the workings of the mind and the heart very well as well as how one can be driven by one's own de- desires. And so they, they knew very well something of the struggle, that even though they had detached themselves from all society and culture, that they, they knew that they can be, could be driven to uh, impure desires simply by the power of their own imagination or, or their memory. And so they knew it was a difficult thing to overcome.
3: Yeah, I think that in our culture that we have a, a very natural, almost knee response to discussing these questions. Mm-hmm. that is immediately moralistic. Mm-hmm. Take a, you know, we think about chastity and about purity and about sexual sin, right. etc., in a very moralistic way. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that that uh, say Cassian or Saint Thomas or you know, St. Francis of Assisi or ever. approaches it is through, uh, you know, if you said some kind of a therapeutic uh, uh, methodology that talks about these things as a healing remedy right. to sort of heal, heal you know, this disorder at the root of, of the passion so that then you can, you know, progress in virtue. Right. Um, even though it says that St. Philip was very hard on himself, uh, you know, it would be interesting to know uh, uh, later in his life if he didn't achieve a degree of mastery mm-hmm. and of uh, profound, mm-hmm. you know, purification and healing in this area.
0: He so did. In fact, he
3: says so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm thinking of all these other was told of St. Francis being caught in kind of a very similar uh, situation to St. Thomas and St. Philip, in which he was, uh, you know, locked in a room with a prostitute. And he proceeded to disrobe completely, mm-hmm. walk into the fireplace where there was a big fire, sit down be, being completely unharmed, and invite the prostitute in to sit with him. And you know, of course he immediately you know felt terrible and repented. And, you know, <laughs> 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 I think that would do it for me too. <laughs> yeah. so the whole thing but, but, you know obviously to illustrate that. That the fire of of lust mm-hmm. and, uh, and of chastity, uh, you know, mm-hmm. almost could no longer touch him. Although yeah. it was obvious from other uh, episodes of his life, earlier in his life, that he had, you know, very profound struggles with it, and and, you know, and, and the same kind of antipathy
0: towards relationships with women, perhaps and so forth. As right. he was kind of in the rigorous therapeutic. Yeah. Philip did soften over time. That's true, and uh, you bring up a good point about the therapeutic aspect. You know, I think that's important to keep in mind. You know, it's not, you know, rooted in a, a hatred of the self, but acknowledgement of the woundedness of sin and the need to be healed by the grace of God. And you know, in these Desert Fathers, there was no prudishness or shame in talking about it, and so they didn't have this negative view of the human person they knew that the body acted in certain ways it's been funny we've been, I said we've been re- reading uh, Cassian's uh, conference on chastity and he's talking about things that would probably make most of us blush here uh, but you know he talks about you know the bodily move he's focused on men in particular obviously in his writing but he talks about bodily movements you know, when the bladder's full, what happens to a, a man in the morning? He talks about dreams and nocturnal omissions and things like that. So there was no shame in talking about it. They understood the workings of the, the body very well, and but what needed to be done in order that one could remain free from sin, even in the face of those those things. And again, I think often the church's teaching is characterized as simply a prudish or negative view of human sexuality when I think it's actually the deepest understanding of hum- human sexuality. Our, our generation, our society is hypersexualized, sees itself as uh, liberated, but you know, more than ever it's enslaved to, I think, a false view of the human person, and with that has come a loss of freedom and the capacity to love. I think we need to only look at uh, the divorce rate within society you know, this incapacity to, to remain faithful and uh, you know, the infidelities even within the course of a relationship itself as well as the whole pornography issue. Well, I not we go on to look at what Philip has to say here, or at least Philip's teaching. Of the occasions of sin which we must avoid if we would preserve our chastity, We must be vigilantly diligent in avoiding occasions of sin, for Saint Philip reminds us of that doctrine so much inculcated by the saints, that whereas some temptations are vanquished by conflict and others by contempt, temptations against purity can only be overcome by flight. Our saint, therefore, used to say that in this conflict, cowards are the most secure, because in the wars of this world, cowards fly. So it's an interesting thing that you know, if we understood the power of human desire and if we respected that power, then we would act like Philip. We wouldn't put ourselves to, to the test or put God to the test, never imagining that somehow we've reached this level of virtue that we could expose ourselves to things where we're not going to be moved. And especially with this one, we, with other temptations, we might stand and do battle. But with this particular temptation, always the best course is to remove ourselves as quickly as we can. And this is where we often falter. You know, we'll get locked into struggling with the thoughts, the images that are in our imagination. And in that, we, we weaken ourselves. And so when we look at the the tradition that surrounds this, the spiritual discipline, it all, all often involves the saying of a short prayer that you used to gently move the mind and the heart toward God away from the specifics of the, the temptation so a lot of you know here we've talked about before the, the Jesus prayer in particular or for Cassian "O oh God come to my assistance O oh Lord make haste to help me that they would use these brief prayers to gently move the mind and the heart towards God whenever these temptations would come and as often as they would come and it's a brilliant insight because it only takes a moment to shift the the attention toward god and that moment can be enough to free ourselves from the grip of that of that temptation and it is such a gentle practice too that to be able to repeat this within the mind and the heart it can become so deeply ingrained there that it becomes a natural movement for us so as often as that temptation comes what wells up within the heart is this prayer calling for god's assistance some of the fathers say that when we are faced with a multitude of temptations we are to keep our eyes upon the beloved as if across a crowded room and so there may be a lot of movement by these temptations but if we have eyes only for the beloved then we aren't going to be moved by them. We're not, going to be drawn, or we're not going to be distracted, in other words. And so to make use of this prayer becomes very important. At moments like that, discursive meditation uh, is going to be very difficult. If you've ever been besieged by temptations of this sort, you know, sitting down and meditating upon some passage from the scripture or picking up a spiritual book to read becomes very difficult. But to say uh, a short prayer, even to call on the name of Jesus, is very much possible at those moments and often is what will will save us in the struggle. We must scrupulously observe custody of the eyes, which the saint did in such a manner that he did not look at women even in the confessional, as was attested by a most beautiful penitent of his, who declared that during the 30 years in which he had been her confessor, she had never perceived that he had looked at her once. Now as the saint was ordained a priest at the age of 36, he must have then have been nearly 70 years of age. Once we we may draw some other instructions, which he inculcated saying, whilst a man can raise his eyelids, he should not trust in any age. So as long as we are capable of seeing we sh- we should not trust ourselves. And again, you know, I think it shows just the simple wisdom of Philip there, that, that there is something powerful and very strong about this, and so we don't want to, to take it lightly. I think uh, as we get closer to the end, I'd like to return to this, you know, way that uh, the women are presented within... Philip's teachings, and there have been some things I've been reading lately that I think might be illuminating in regards to how we might approach this in in our present day while seeking to maintain the discipline of Philip Neri and the father's, perhaps changing the way that we understand that we need to go, go about that. Any comments on the first section or questions? Means of defense against temptations. The instructions of the Holy Master for the preservation of chastity are as follows: Be humble, for the Saint declares humility to be the true safeguard of chastity. So that we must endeavor to pursue this virtue in an especial manner. You need a good and experienced confessor, and so the pursuit of chastity is not something that one does in isolation. That. The humility that's needed can only be fostered when there's a willingness to lay before our confessor the thoughts and the actions that we are struggling with. This is where true freedom begins, that when, when we uh, bring what we are struggling uh, into the light of Christ, and that, that's where the healing that Jim talked about begins to take place. And there's a temptation that we, we often will struggle with to uh, either make excuses for what we have done or what we're struggling with or not to mention it or to mention it as the last thing uh, that we confess to sort of slide it in there. Did you ever see the movie uh, Moonstruck where she mentions that sin of committing adultery with her fiance's brother and she sort of squeezes it in between like eating meat on Friday and, <laughs> and the priest sort of catches, what's that? thing you mentioned <laughs> in the middle and as a confessor that often happens and the most experienced confessors will say that you want to confess the things that you struggle with the most first that you bring these before God uh, in order that he might heal them. Don't hold, hold back in describing them hold, hold back details or hold them to the end be frequent in prayer and you know, we can look at this as a pious sort of uh, instruction, but the, the depth of prayer, I think, that is needed in our day is perhaps greater than any generation. That, and that might seem an extreme thing to say, but you know, with the things that uh, afflict us, the, the watchfulness of mind and heart that we need, the depth of prayer that we need in order that that healing might take place, The grace that we need in order to be strong in the temptations requires that we would be engaged in deep prayer on a daily basis. And not simply what seems reasonable or in accord with human wisdom, what we think is necessary for us in our spiritual life. And this is the the difficult struggle. We have to listen on such a level and look at our lives so honestly that we open ourselves up to the to a divine wisdom that call, might be calling us to a kind of prayer that we would not have imagined, and that might take years to develop. But God might be calling us to a depth of prayer that goes beyond 15 minutes a day. It might be hours a day, and and also vigil time, praying at night in order that a a deeper prayer can emerge when the mind and the body have been humbled so a deeper kind of healing can take place there. Hours of Eucharistic adoration. Uh, This, I think, is perhaps God's response to the struggle with pornography in our day. To be able to gaze upon that which is holy is the only thing that can heal that which has been corrupted by sin. And so if you think about it, to gaze upon pornography on a computer to fill the mind, the imagination with what is unholy, how is this to be healed other than gazing upon perfect love and to gaze upon the Lord with the eyes of faith, to see him, his gaze upon his Eucharistic face. And the more we do that, the the deeper the, the healing can become. And again, this is not something that can take place immediately. There is no quick fix here. The deeper the hold that this passion has upon us, the deeper the prayer has to become. And so if we have struggled for decades with this passion, then it may be decades that we have to immerse ourselves in deep prayer and other ascetic practices, fasting in particular, in order to gain the purity of heart of which Philip speaks here. Any thoughts about that in particular, about adoration? It does seem to be providential. Not that Eucharistic adoration hasn't existed for centuries, but I think the fact that people are being drawn more and more to it is uh, a sign of the nature of the struggle that God... You know, where sin abounds, grace abounds, all the more. And so the, the fact that we have freedom to engage in Eucharistic adoration is certainly certainly has to do with the, the will of God. And it always brings great joy, the fact that we have perpetual adoration here in the center of secular university campuses, that even if people aren't engaged in it directly, you have others that are engaged in it very deeply. And this can't but bear fruit for for... The universities, in one way or another, and again we might only see the fruit of that over the course of decades. But to, to have those who are committed and perhaps, you know, uh, engaged in acts of reparation, specifically uh, in, in regards to this struggle, that this can bear enormous fruit use this ejaculation, I trust in God, I trust in the goodness of God. So again, you know, Philip holding out one of the many uh, short little prayers that he would use in times of temptation. Often say from the heart, O Lord, trust not in me, for if thou help me not, I shall surely fall. Or O Lord, look for naught but evil from me. So as, even as Philip grew in holiness, He knew of his capacity for sin, what he was capable of doing in his lesser moments if he was not guarded and if he wasn't protected by the grace of God. Frequent the holy sacraments. And again, I think we have to look at the realities that we face today and examine our our prayer life and our participation in the sacraments in light of those realities. What should our... Frequenting the sacraments look like in terms of confession for example You know with all the things that bombard us on a daily basis It becomes very easy for us uh, To over time be gradually weakened and so to seek the grace of the sacrament in particular Confession can be something that strengthens us in the, the daily struggle and so Philip in his own day had people going to confession regularly, you know, weekly, twice weekly, three times weekly, some people every day if it was necessary, if in particular if they were struggling with some grave sin. So even b- before frequent communion, he was having them go to confession even more frequently in order that they might receive the grace of receiving the Holy Eucharist well and that it might bear the greatest amount of fruit for them that they might not receive it sacrilegiously and again there needs to be i think some kind of catechesis about this in our, our day that there isn't sort of this attentiveness to being well prepared to receive the holy eucharist in order that we might grow and grow in the grace of god and uh, there's you know, a great deal of presumption in that regard in our, our own day and Perhaps we've grown afraid of saying things or even showing that restraint in, in our day in, in the sense of really wanting to prepare ourselves well. You know, there are many that would feel more embarrassed if a family member or a friend would see them go- not going to communion. Then they would be more concerned about that than receiving the Holy Eucharist unworthily. And so there's something there that we need to do catechetically to try to, to overcome overcome that and again Philip I think can be not only a great teacher, teacher but a great model in that and it doesn't need to be a huge movement. I think even when you have a group of, of people here like at the oratory and the students that come here who are engaging in Eucharistic adoration, coming to mass daily, going to confession regularly, it becomes a model of behavior and often others will, will begin to embrace that behavior even before they understand the reasons behind it. They'll enter into it and then gain an experiential knowledge of, of the value of it. And so, you know, this is something, you know, for those who are parents to try to, to foster among your children, but those who work with the students, you know, to try to, to foster this most of all. What the church needs is the grace of God and the healing of his grace, you know, more so than you know, even the programs that we, we offer. We need a renewal in the spirit and a renewal of grace. Uh, use of the ejaculation which St. Philip teaches us to use under sensual temptations. O Virgin Mary, Mother of God, pray to Jesus thy son for me, a sinner, virgin and mother, for all who have used it have found it very efficacious." So to seek strength and intercession from the saints that are known for their purity. Above all, the, the Virgin Mother, and then Philip Neri would be another one, and then certainly many other saints throughout the history of the church, which is the next point. We should have a particular affection for those saints who have been distinguished for purity, as Father Galonio had, who had by the counsel of the Holy Master undertook from devotion to write histories of the Roman virgins and derive great spiritual profit from his labor. And so Philip was very keen on having people become familiar with the lives of the saints, that they're the ones that spur us on in the spiritual, life, that as we see that they struggled in the spiritual life as we begin to see what they did in order to engage in the struggle fully we again begin to to learn through imitation and to grow in virtue through imitation and that's the whole reason for our reading the lives of the saints not just to be edified by their lives but in order to imitate their behaviors yes Uh, you
4: mentioned how uh, was very
6: familiar with the desert fathers. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking
0: of uh, Saint Mary of Egypt. Mm-hmm. He familiar with her, her life the I don't know. The, from my reading of Philip, uh, there's no mention of Saint Mary. But if he was familiar with Climacus and Cassian and some of the Eastern fathers, I wouldn't be surprised if that was so. But Saint Mary, he brings up Saint Mary of Egypt, who had lived a dissolute life. And then so, for as many years as she had engaged in a life of prostitution, she went off to live in in the desert to to live a penitential life. And in doing so, had gained a a great deal of purity and has become a model, really, of of the ascetic life. This is another motive for affectionate devotion to the saint who gives this further advice. When we hear of anyone's fall we must excite ourselves to compassion and not to anger. For he said that one of the best means of keeping ourselves chaste is to have compassion on those who fall through frailty, never to boast of our own escapes, but humbly to refer all to the mercy of God. And he assures us that want of compassion in such cases is the sure presage of, of a fall. So Proverbs says pride rideth before the fall. And so this is Philip's counsel here. The moment that we look at another in a judgmental way, not just in, in, uh, in regards to chastity, but in regards to any moral struggle, then the moment that we judge another, we're likely to be afflicted by the things where we find ourselves the weakest. And so it's important never to judge another in their spiritual struggle, know, knowing again what we're capable of in our own sinfulness. In regard to nocturnal temptations, the Holy Father exhorts us when going to bed to say the hymn Te Lucius Ante Terminum, adding that he always said it when he went to bed. And I gave you a copy of two translations of the hymn, uh, not that we have to read through that, but just for your for your own use and I think the point here though is important to to prepare ourselves for sleep through our prayer life that you know it's at that moment at that moment often where we struggle the most when we are fatigued we begin to lose our watchfulness We're a person is half asleep half conscious perhaps but also that our minds and our hearts might be healed and purified to such an extent that even our dreams would become purified. That the unconscious would be so deeply purified by the life of prayer that we would even be freed from dreams that would be of a a sexual nature. And uh, so to go off to sleep as one is praying Uh, Often the, the Desert Fathers would say the Jesus Prayer as they were going off to sleep. And they knew that it became deeply rooted within their heart when they were saying it going to bed and when they woke up in the morning, it was the first thing on their lips. So as they were coming back in the consciousness, the first thing that they were doing was calling on God for his help and his assistance. And so this is the kind of formation, the kind of purity that we would want to have, that we would want to be engaged and this level of prayer throughout the course of the day, that it even follows us into sleep and comes back to us at the moment of our waking. Uh, In the group on Cassian, we've just been reading that uh, certainly having uh, erotic dreams is not sinful. We're not in control of our, our own dreams, but it can be still a sign of a need for the purification of the mind and the heart, that deep within the unconscious, there still is something there that perhaps due to our own negligence or past sin still resides within the heart. And so we really want to open ourselves to God in as radical a way as possible in order that that healing and pur- purification can take place. Any comments? Becca, do you have a key for the air conditioning? Do you mind adjusting a little bit? It's getting chilly here. <laughs> Freezing to death is a cure for chastity. It's <laughs> a cure for unchastity.
1: <laughs>
0: Could be a cure for chastity too, I guess because it makes people huddle together. But <laughs> So where are we here?
4: Uh the Holy, oh, the Holy Father. Father!
0: The Holy Father especially warns us against feeding the body delicately. The Saint also taught by his actions, for he mortified his flesh by abstinence, one of the principal helps for maintaining the preserving the, pre- the preserving of purity. And for the same purpose, it will be very desirable to take the discipline three times a week, as prescribed by Saint Philip to the members of the congregation and to the brothers of the external oratory. This was confirmed by the saying of Marcello spiritual his spiritual son, who asked Saint Philip how he could possess chastity. Master, what must I do to possess chastity? The saint replied that he must mortify the flesh, and for this purpose he showed him the iron chains which he, with which he disciplined himself. Uh, again, this isn't something that we typically hear about in our day and age, let alone Uh, the mortification of the flesh that, you know, controlling another bodily appetite becomes essential in the struggle for purity of, of heart. That we, in our culture, you know, have such an abundance of food that we are constantly eating, you know, enormous meals, but also grazing in between meals feeling a little faint, and so I have to have a snack of a power bar or something like that. So there's rarely a moment that we go hungry. And the idea of humbling the body, of ordering that bodily <coughs> appetite, rarely comes into the mind uh, of many people in our day and age. And the same is true with liquids, that we're always carrying around with us a water bottle uh, so that we can have, you know, we'll stay hydrated so that we don't become weak throughout the day. But, you know, these Desert Fathers understood that if you drink too many fluids, you're also going to affect the body. And as we said, you know, as coming out of sleep, if you have a full bladder for a man, that's going to cause certain issues. And so it can be also a source of temptation for him. So they would not only restrain the amount of food that they would eat, but the amount of liquid that they would drink for for that purpose. And so getting back to the practice of a, of a regular fasting, and this, again, is something I think that we have to allow ourselves to be guided by the wisdom of God, not simply by, and by the tradition of the church, not simply by our own understanding of what we would do, that gradually over time we would want to have fasting as a regular part of our spiritual discipline. And I think you all know in the West that it's become very limited that we fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Those are the required days. And we abstain from meat on Fridays, but even this is loosely held to in our time. So how do we regain this aspect of the tradition that says that fasting is not to be something that's episodic, that it's to be a regular part of our spiritual life? For the Desert Fathers, they fasted every single day for a 24-hour period. So they would eat one meal a day and then they would fast for that 24-hour period. And they wouldn't fast further than that so as not to weaken the body and they would not... uh, so as not to weaken the body and fall into pride. Uh, But nonetheless, they would do it every single day because they knew that in humbling the body also comes humbling of the mind and makes one more receptive and open to God in prayer. It slows things down physiologically for a person as well as uh, psychologically and emotionally. And so it can make a person's prayer deeper, especially towards the end of the fast. So they saw it as so important that they would practice it every single day. Now living in the world where perhaps the rigors of our work wouldn't allow for that, we have to find a way, how would we fast in such a way that we regain that regularity over time? And maybe there are those living in the world who could embrace the regular fast uh, over a long period of time if they were able to, to develop the discipline and their body would adjust to it. And perhaps that's even needed in our, our time uh, to have those living within the world who are embracing that kind of ascetical discipline in order to strengthen... The church in order to strengthen the body. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, that this is an as- essential aspect of the spiritual life. We can't marginalize it and make it something that we do only once in a while, if ever. A certain, you're stroking your beard, so, two 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 or, or your stubble. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: Um, so, one, a sort of incidental question. Mm-hmm. What if somebody is actually probably underhydrated and it would be a greater discipline to drink a lot of water throughout the day, as some people may have suggested?
0: Well, certainly there are exceptions. You know, if a person is in ill health, say, for example, they are mortified by their own physical illness. And so, fasting rigorously might not be a good thing or even necessary for them if they embrace the suffering that they're enduring in a spirit of faith and certainly those who perhaps have you know struggle with dehydration then they might give themselves as as much as needed i think the problem isn't giving ourselves what is needed it's the excess that will we drink enough water that it makes us live half of our life in the bathroom. (laughs) I mean, gallant, you know, people are carrying around, what are those bottles, those unbreakable plastic ones that, what are they called, Brother Paul? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Paul's his name, Chip. You've probably seen it on on Facebook. Facebook. (laughs) I think Paul's a camel. (laughs) Part camel, anyways. You know, certainly I think we look to what medical science tells us, you know, that there is a value to, for our health, of hydration, and certainly, uh, you know, getting our necessary nutrients uh, is important. But, you know, Philip said heaven isn't for cowards, that the value of the mortification of the flesh in some ways outweighs our level of comfort. That certainly fasting is going to make us feel weak. And there are going to be days that it's very difficult and perhaps we'll get a headache from it and and struggle with it. But there is something about the mortification of the flesh there and the mortification mortification of the appetites that hold such great value to us that we have to be willing to endure the mortification for the greater value. And we, we baby ourselves in the West, there's no doubt about it. And also in the kinds of food that we eat, there's a lack of simplicity there, a lack of willingness to abstain from the the rich kinds of food that weigh us down and would make prayer very difficult for us. You know, if we eat a big meal or something that's very heavy, you know, a lot of meat, a 16-ounce steak, you know, or heavy desserts, it's going to be very difficult to pray. And you know, Philip thought that we should be able, after we've eaten, to be able to go into the chapel and pray. And if you can't go into the chapel without falling asleep after a meal, you pretty much know that you're eating too much. And I think this goes a- across the board to all of the different ways that we nourish ourselves. Sleep would be another one, that we can be sort of gluttonous in that regard too that we m- might need to give ourselves a certain amount of rest that we can function, but being disciplined there in order that we can have a disciplined prayer life and not, you know, remain in, in bed and lose that time and fall into a sort of sloth become is very important as well. Newman, uh, blessed Newman, you know, made it like seven hours for himself and that was sufficient for him to be able to do his work carry a heavy workload, and yet it w- didn't take him, you know, to the po- point of sloth. Yes.
4: I'm curious. <clears throat> the one kind of mortification that our culture is okay with and encourages is physical exercise. And mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that, and where that kind of fits in?
0: Yeah, that yeah. there's a great irony there. I think that we accept the presence of asceticism as necessary for life and accomplishment. Asceticism means exercise. And so in every part of our life, every field, all forms of sports, we will discipline ourselves with great rigor, modify diet. People will exercise sometimes hours, a couple hours a day in order to remain fit. You know, if you've ever seen joggers out there, they look like the most miserable people in the world. and they're, they're, they're suffering also that they can look fit, you know, or be fit physically, so that there is a certain value to it. That they're doing it for that. But when it comes to the spiritual life, you know, gaining a purity of heart, control of our appetites, somehow praying for a couple hours a day seems like fanaticism. I don't have time for that in my schedule. Or fasting seems, you know, that's inhuman. You know, how how can you expect to, you know, even the idea of a daily fast. You know, a lot of athletes will fast from certain foods. They will fast on certain days of the week. They'll do like a juice fast in order to purify their system. So even if they're engaged in heavy exercise, they will do that just in order to keep their system pure. And so people are willing to engage in this asceticism in all different forms, but not in the spiritual life. And so we have to overcome the resistance to that that is within us. It's a kind of spiritual and psychological resistance uh, that we have to overcome. And so we have to have these ideas clear in our mind that the spiritual life is not just a spontaneous reality. You know, that there's an involvement of self in this relationship with God, and it has to be the whole self, not just part of ourselves that's relegated off to a certain period of the day. Our whole day has to be imbued with our desire to grow in holiness and to be, uh, to be engaged in this intimate relationship with the Lord. And so whatever it takes, we would be willing to do. Even Paul talks about this. You know, athletes pursue their discipline for a worldly wreath and exercise is all well and good, but it doesn't compare to the value of what the spiritual life offers us, which is eternal life to share in the life of the the Trinity. And if that was clear in our mind, one would think that we would do everything we can to engage in that relationship as fully as possible. Forgive
3: me if you already explained, but, the, but these iron chains that sink really...
0: I haven't talked about that yet. We're getting there. <laughs> you had to bring that up. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, it's corporal discipline. And it was seen certainly as a way of humbling the body, but also a direct participation in the sufferings of Christ, of being able to share in something of the experience of the scourging that Christ underwent, and so, and along with that would be a, a scourging of the sinful passions within us, and so, among the people, especially in, in Philip's time, there was they would engage in a kind of corporal discipline, and. For Philip, it was three times a week, and even for those who are part of the little oratory, the secular oratory, were engaged in this discipline. It, was it Paul or, or Peter who that told me about this, about there were two groups of the secular oratory, or was it just about those who were levitating? <laughs> okay, sorry, I confused that one. They had two separate meetings, one for a group that was levitating, and one that was just the normal group. <laughs> Get the picture. <laughs> I, I guess, I guess Philip Phil probably decided. It. But it's interesting, you know. Again, I think the, the those in the world and those within the church would even find this a little scary or frightening, and wonder if it's masochistic. And yet, you know, when we look at people like Padre Pio or Saint Francis of Assisi. And we see how deeply they meditated upon the mysteries of the passion and how they sought to enter into that as fully as they can, as fully as they could. And to be also prepared to uh, willingly embrace whatever sufferings the Lord might bring into their life, to humble the will, to make it pliable, docile, that this kind of action seemed necessary for them that it was formative of the mind and the heart, and it engaged the full person you know again we 've minimized things so much with within the life of the church that again the spiritual life isn 't lived out only in our mind; it has to involve the whole whole self, so even in our liturgy, we kneel, we stand there 's incense, so we sm- you know, we smell things we sing. You know, we involve the f- full self. And so in the spiritual life, you know, on a daily basis, that has to be the reality is, too. And th- in the East, we see more of this. You know, the, they engage in prostrations as part of their prayer, uh, whereas often we'll be sitting in a chair falling uh, asleep. And I think one of the ways that they avoided that was to engage the, the full self in the spiritual discipline. So again, that relationship with Christ or the sufferings of Christ or our own preparedness to suffer for Christ was not an abstract reality, that it was something ever so tangible for them. So all of these ascetical activities had their end, their, their purpose, and it was to make one give themselves over to Christ more fully. So these were never practiced as an end in themselves, you know, simply like to punish the body. They were a part of a spiritual life as a whole, all of which was directed towards Christ. And so they also engaged in something like the chapter of faults, where uh, they would accuse themselves of the ways that they've sinned against the common life, and then they would take upon themselves a penance for that in order that they might be more mindful in the future and seek to live it more fully. Can you imagine in marriages if, you know, spouses had uh, like a weekly chapter of faults and said, yeah, he left the room at just the perfect time. <laughs> he won't believe you, he won't believe you. <laughs> But the, <laughs> the, so the idea of something that was concrete reflection upon the life, you know, to be able to articulate, I failed in living my commitment in this way, I failed in charity in this way, and then to take a penance you know, for that, in reparation for that, all that geared to living the life more perfectly. And, you know, these are the things that. Should be regained within religious communities and should be regained within the church as a whole. You know corporal discipline you know is something that would only be engaged in you know under spiritual direction and counsel and something that would be you know done in a more discreet fashion, and but you know perhaps only for those who are, are living a deeper spiritual life. but I think it is something that should be looked at. You know, every, when we went back and looked at the life of the early oratory, you know, in every document there was mention of the chapter of faults and the discipline and all the practices that we're talking about here. And somewhere along the centuries, certain practices fell off that Philip was saw as absolutely necessary for the spiritual life. And so, you know, the Second Vatican Council called the church and religious communities to go back to look at the charism of their founders and the practices so that they might be embraced with a clear understanding, and instead they were just thrown thrown off. But these were the things that really shaped the oratory to help them live it more fully, to love each other more fully, to be more fully committed. It led to a deeper kind of of self-reflection
5: about the chapter of faults and then having a penance. Would that penance typically be something that would be directly? So if it was like I, you know, have been being a jerk to you all week and I realize this, so I'm going to make it a point to like really find kind things to say,
4: and that's my penance. <laughs>
0: I'll <laughs> just it be it I'll be, just like, be nicer this yeah. week. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> a tough nice that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> um,
4: maybe that's not a great example,
5: but like you know, or I fail to you know do my duty to, like, clean up, you know, the kitchen, and so I'm going to be particular? Or would it be something unrelated, or would it
4: depend, or...?
0: I think it could be, like, unrelated, like a specific, you know, engaging in specific devotions Mm -hmm. or disciplines, you know, in reparation for that, but also to help one be... to pray for that, to be more mindful, Mm -hmm. you know, of how you're living your life. So, you know, to take up, to say, three rosaries or to, you know, engage in some spiritual discipline, you know, fast from a meal or something like that, is, again, it's something, we look at this over the course of a whole lifetime. And so the extreme nature of it isn't important. It can be a, a small thing, but so, so long as it's a regular practice is what makes it bear fruit. And so the desert fathers, like with the fasting, they wanted to avoid the extremes, but they knew that the practice was—it was necessary to have it be regular. <clears throat> Any comments or questions about that?
1: He's back. You can re-explain. <laughs>
4: Terry, every week you're going to confess what you did wrong, and you're going to assign yourself a penance to make up for it. <laughs> 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 every to your day. wife, yeah. <laughs> 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 she gets to do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Together, in regards
4: to the household.
0: Okay, all right, let's move on. (laughs) We're not doing this in a public forum. (laughs) Remedies against temptations when they beset us. The certain temptations which present themselves to the mind in this manner, if you had such a facility or such an opportunity of offending against modesty, what would you do? the Holy Master counsels us to reply, I do not know what I would do. I know well what I ought to do. And he commends this manner of reply more than saying absolutely, I would not do it. I would not say it. Because this would be to have a presumption in ourselves. So often, we'll engage in the spiritual life, you know, seeing and, you know, and understanding that we would not want to do something. But we can be prideful in that, you know, saying that I would never do that, while at the same time exposing ourselves that subtly weaken us, that perhaps would really make that a possibility. So even though it doesn't seem as though we would ever do something, you know, again, in our weaker moments or through our negligence and laziness in the spiritual life, we can reach a point where we would do what we never thought we would do, or say things that we never thought we would say to another when we're caught up in the heat of a moment or or, of anger. When we feel tempted, let us have recourse to the powerful means of holy prayer by which St. Philip overcame and by his example instructs us to do likewise. As once when passing the Colosseum, as the sacred legend tells us, the devil tried to raise filthy images in his mind, But having recourse to his usual remedy of prayer, he remained victor in the battle. When, says the saint, a man feels temptation, let him have recourse to the Lord, devoutly repeating that ejaculation so much esteemed by the holy fathers of the desert. O God, come to my assistance, O Lord, make haste to help me. Or this verse, create a clean heart within me, O God, and renew a right spirit within my bowels. So the first phrase there is from Psalm 71. Uh, Saint Benedict uh, made this a part of the divine office, and we still began each of the hours of the breviary with with this very phrase from the psalm, O God, come to my assistance, O Lord, make haste to help me. But Cassian saw this as something that we would repeat over and over again, calling out to God in whatever situation we might find ourselves but to ask God for his assistance and grace at every single moment. This keeps coming back again and again, and I, I think it's you know, consistent within our spiritual tradition that we're called not just to episodic prayer, but to ceaseless prayer, to seek to foster in our day-to-day lives a constant mindfulness of God. And so even though living in the world, we're called not to give ourselves over to distractions, Uh, but in the course of the day to be praying all the time except when we're otherwise engaged in the work that we're doing and even then when there are moments when we can shift our attention to God we do so and then step right back into the work that we're doing again we've become so used to getting in the car turning on the radio or watching television or other things to distract ourselves rather than using that time to be engaged in prayer. So, in one sense, we have to let go of our, you know, sense of of time, you know, that I'm going to pray this much a day. Our goal should really be to pray, be praying constantly, praying without ceasing, that we do set aside those times for a deeper prayer, say, when we can go into the chapel for adoration, but really, our mindset should be that we would want to be turning our mind and our heart to God at every available moment. And again, that's sort of a shift for us, because in our culture especially, we're used to, to distraction. And we become very uncomfortable when we have uh, a deeper silence. But to have this level of purity of heart and to have the level of prayer that would make it possible... I think especially in our day and age, might mean cutting out things like television or cutting out radio and allowing ourselves to engage in the, the repeating of the Jesus prayer or of, oh God, come to my assistance, oh so Lord, make haste to help me. That if our desire is intimacy with God, if our desire is to seek out His grace at a, every moment then this is the kind of exercise that we would want want to engage in. And there's nothing that really would prevent us from doing that except our own unwillingness to, to make the sacrifice of that. There is a distinctive kind of poverty that we embrace as Christians. And the poverty is is that we are going to separate ourselves from the things that could lead us into sin and that we are going to use our freedom, we're going to give up our time in order to engage in a life of deep prayer so that we can truly live for Christ. And that doesn't mean that we never give ourselves any recreation or any kind of relaxation, but it does mean that our habit of mind is to be seeking to engage in prayer as frequently as we can. And so this is what I mean about you know, giving up this sense of time, you know, praying by the clock. You know, How long have I been here? How long is the hour over yet? <laughs> you know, we have to you know, st- step out of that and allow God to draw us into the depths and to remain there as long as he, he wants us to. And there is even a kind of force that we have to have in the practice of prayer. And again, this is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around because we think that it should be something that's inspired or that we should want to do, or if we're having trouble or distracted, that we should maybe come back to at a different time. But the whole tradition tells us no. There are times when you're going to have to force yourself and fight with distraction the whole time or your lack of desire to be there. We've been, I've been reading uh, this book called The Watchful Mind. It was written by uh, an Athenite monk around the time that the Philokalia was written. And he describes the practice of prayer and the pain that's involved in it. The, 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 as they engaged in the, the saying of the Jesus prayer, the focus was on the, the heart, the eye of the heart, the, the God dwelling within, in such an intense way that physical pain would be experienced. And they would engage in that with such intensity that in t- at times, it was as if the heart was being shredded, that the purification of the heart that was taking place was not a comfortable kind of activity. And so we have to let go of this idea of prayer being always a consoling kind of activity. You know, it's a way that we open our, ourselves up to the healing grace of God. And sometimes the divine physician will act upon us, and that's not necessarily going to be a pleasing experience. Any thoughts about some of this? We're coming to the end, so... Uh, That's a lot to throw at you. One, kiss the ground. So, you know, making an act of humility every day. So to begin the day with an act of obedience, obeisance to God. You know, we wake up in the morning and we make this act of humility, offering all that we are and have to God. It seems like a simple thing, but again, it's a bodily activity. It involves the full self in an act of prayer. So to make a a simple prostration is something that can be very powerful. Fly from idleness as far as you are able. So not to to let oneself uh, simply sit in a state of boredom or to zone out. And I would even say idleness is something like watching television. Because then, you know, again, we become vulnerable to temptations. We slide into a kind of virtual reality where we're not really attentive to what's going on within. We become absorbed in a pseudo-contemplation, absorbed with what's going on on that screen and what's happening in the activity in the actions of the characters. And if we do that too much, in, in my mind, it's the same as idleness. And I think I've mentioned this before. There are some studies that show that looking at that blank wall, there's more brain activity than looking at a television screen.
6: You
0: also burn more calories during the wall. You burn more calories? Probably because it takes more attention. <laughs> the Holy Master also prescribes that when a temptation arises, the person should call to mind his former consolations in prayer, by doing which he will easily surmount the temptation. So to call to mind the gifts that God has given us in the past, to be mindful of, of his goodness. He should disclose his thoughts to his confessor with all freedom, for this the Holy Master declares to be a sovereign means for the preservation of chastity, for by disclosure to the physician the wound is healed. So we've already talked about this a little, little bit, but to you know disclose every thought. An excellent and powerful remedy in these attacks is to invoke the aid of our loving father, St. Philip, since many, by conversing with him, preserved their chastity, and very many received the same grace when the saint only drew them to his breast. So Philip, as you knew, had the mystical experience, his heart expanded by the grace of God, and it would even shake the room when people would come to confession, and so sometimes drawing him to his heart would be a source of consolation, but also of healing for them. And so even though we're separated by centuries, to have Philip as a patron is to also have access to his intercession on, on our behalf. And so to draw close to his heart is something that can, can bring us healing. Father Antonio Galonio, who was always free from sensual temptations, said that the holy old man used to pinch him here and there on his sides with such force as to give him great pain. And he thought that he had received this great favor from the touch of his holy hands, also by threatening the tempter that they would accuse him to St. Philip. His spiritual children were completely freed from these temptations. (laughs) So Philip could be sort of playful, but he also knew those who were around him very well and those who were struggling. And so if you think about that, he was probably distracting the person from a particular temptation. you know, pinch you know, a playful pinch, even to the point of feeling the physical pain, was probably enough to turn his mind away from wherever it was, wherever it was roaming. And not that anyone could do this. I think, you know, Philip had the gift of discerning spirits and so you know, he certainly had the special ability to do that, so I won't be smacking any of you on the, the back of the head or, <laughs> or pinching you as much as I would want to. But you know. <laughs> In doing this, they executed a counsel which he had given them and which all his devoted children may imagine to be addressed to themselves. They, the counsel is this. When you feel yourself tempted in such a manner, say to the devil, I accuse you to Philip." and that the temptations then cease, ceased. So, you know, this is to show a kind of s- simple faith in our our patron and his intercession to accuse the tempter to Philip. And it seems to be a very beautiful practice. You know, it is really to treat Philip as a spiritual father. I accuse you to Philip. And knowing that... Huh? Well,
1: you
0: know, certainly in his state now, you know, the the power of that would be even more powerful for us if we think about it. He warned them, however, to repeat these words simply and without reasoning, knowing how much the devil fears words spoken in faith and holy simplicity. So, an interesting little point there that we wouldn't think too much about this or how that would take place, but trusting, rather, simply in his intercession. Now, if our saint was so powerful on earth, how far more so must he be in heaven? Surely there he can obtain for us the effects of this and other instructions which flowed from his mouth, so that in our need we may invoke his help in the following manner. To thee, O holy and virgin Father, to whom the noxious vice of impurity was so displeasing, I, thine unworthy servant, commend myself, imploring thy powerful help. Behold, the enemy assails me. Already he begins to increase the number of his burning goads and piercing shafts. I accuse him to thee. I invoke thy miraculous name, Philip, Philip. Now is the time to give the aid, thy powerful patronage, of thy powerful patronage to my soul, which is in danger of falling into the hands of the filthy enemy. Defend it, Holy Father, for thou canst do so. And, you know, it seems a fitting place for us to end, you know, that we we who take Philip as our spiritual father, especially for the Oratorians here, you know, to invoke him on a daily basis as as our protector and guide in the spiritual life. That we would see him as our spiritual guide. Knowing the uh, not only the, the depth of his teaching, but also of his holiness. Okay. Yes. I think it's pretty cool just looking at the
6: discussion this evening. You do really see how chastity is like the uh, the foundation of some way of the spiritual life. And you got like the self knowledge it takes to to battle with it, the humility, the defeat of pride, the need for prayer, the need for asceticism, uh, entering deep more and more deeply into it. That it occasions all these different things that are so essential.
0: So, like, right. it just hits on the real the point, really, that how right. bedrock-like it is. Right. And and why they held it in such esteem. You know, it, there was something disturbing in this statement that, you know, Philip, even if a person was held to be holy, if he saw any level of, uh, of unchastity within them, you know, he, he lost esteem for them, knowing the value of this, that... You know, one can't fake the spiritual life. And, you know, one can't, you know, grow in true holiness without this, this virtue. And so, you know, simply seeing things in this way brings, up, I think, about a shift in our spiritual life. The way, as you said, it touches upon all these different elements, but it also shifts where we direct our, our energy and what we pursue. You know, we have a very clear goal set before us and we know what why it's of such value. So there should be nothing that prevents us for, from pursuing it with a kind of rigor. I see. Lisa, you had your hand up. Yeah, well
4: I was just not to bring this up but since hmm. you of mentioned that, hmm. yeah. just about the um, the thing that that Philip said at the beginning about holding someone in and no esteem who has that on chastity how does that connect with what you said about he also had this compassion for those who struggled right. with these sins yeah
0: because o- often you know people would gain a kind of reputation or if they had certain gifts or abilities you know uh, abilities to heal or uh, ecstatic visions often they would be revered and get gain a following but those things can be come from a different source other than God. The root of that can be a different spirit other than the Holy Spirit. And you know, so Philip saw as the barometer of the spiritual life this virtue. And so even if a person had the power to raise somebody from the dead and lacked the ability to discern a lack of purity within himself or lacked that purity, then Philip knew that there was something wrong And so not that he would sit in judgment of him, but I think that he would realize something here isn't as it should be. That there is a possibility for great deceit in the spiritual life. And so those who value, you know, talents, abilities, or spiritual gifts over something like humility or purity of heart chastity, we, you know, that should be held suspect. And, you know, we, we live in a generation where, you know, those kinds of external experiences, you know, especially the past generation, you know, those who are exalted, you know, that if you had these certain spiritual gifts, you know, that was, you know, somehow that was a great thing. But our spiritual tradition says no. You know, if anything, we shouldn't want those things because there can be deceit in them and what we should be pursuing are the, the humble virtues above all.
5: So would it be fair to say that the sort of not regarding with esteem those who are are upheld in society and, and looked highly upon, but don't have the virtue of chastity, but then having this love and compassion for, say, the prostitute or, you know, or the man who's struggling with pornography or what have you, right. that that's where his heart sort of swelled with that compassion and love.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Those yeah.
5: circumstances. I think
0: the emphasis here is on a person who might have a reputation for holiness, mm-hmm. and you know maybe that's not as common in our day. But there could there were people in certain generations that were known and followed, you know, gained this reputation for holiness or for mystical experiences. Teresa of Avila, you know, talks about this too. There are individuals in her day, you know, and it can be a could, you know was a problem.
4: Was, uh, um, there was a, you know, a uh, sister around you know, in Saint Philip's time, mm-hmm. and you know she she had a reputation and you know, for Holy, her, her reputation, apparently because of like, certain spiritual experiences she had. And when Saint Philip, you know, came to visit her he, you know, for something, he um, yeah, you know, he asked, you know, could you help me with my boots? Yeah, so I said, think he walks through the mud and not yeah, asked and, and her to and help he, him take he, his boots off. Away, she, <laughs> she of course she uh, well she turned she turned away with disgust and she and he realized, he said, Oh, uh, he's said, just a follower's you no, know, no, no follower. And you know, she you know, she's not she's not humility. Right. You know, she's you know, she's, <laughs> not, she's not you know, she's not humble enough. To, the, 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 the simple as simple as helping someone
0: with their right. Yeah. I'm sorry we're, we're going to have to stop there real, I've really gone over, over time and before you freeze to death we'll get some sustenance in you hot coffee and, and dessert don't, don't pamper yeah. yeah. but don't eat too much
3: I'll be so will
0: not we uh, stand together and say the prayer to St. Philip and then we'll sing the final hymn and so together we pray Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea. And now that the darkness of this world enters no more those kindly eyes of Thine, from looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, the vineyard which Thy right hand planted, so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid. To thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, undertake the cause of our salvation, protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader, rule thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine in as thou art on high. Keep us off all the rocks of evil desires that with thee for our pilot and guide we may safely come to the port of eternal rest. Amen. Lord be with you. And with spirit. God bless you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Oh God, beyond all praising,
1: we worship you. with yeah.
0: everyone